Time to start another study. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Wonderful book. And we want to begin our study of Hebrews today. Uh, I was supposed to have uh, Brother Dan preach this afternoon, but uh, I switched with him because next Sunday um, we're not going to be here in the evening. Um, So Dan's going to be preaching next Sunday. Uh, Our daughter and son-in-law with their four boys uh, are going to be moving to the state of Florida. Uh, Some probably in the first part of the year to help plant a new church. And so um, they're giving a presentation uh, on next Sunday night. We thought we might like to be there, okay, and uh, find out uh, just what they're up to. (laughs) So uh, we'll be uh, uh, with them next Sunday night and then uh, trusting the Lord will lead them as they go to uh, the Tampa area, I think, is where they're headed, and uh, plant a church there. And I don't know why anybody wanted to move to Florida, but especially from Minnesota. All right. I may have to just uh, take uh, a few months off in the winter time to go see my grandchildren. <laughs> I offered to drive the U-Haul for them already, so... Um, Come January, I might be here and I might not. <laughs> and I might not come back. Well, anyway, at least till the snow melts. Oh, well, other people get to do that, so why shouldn't I? <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> All right, Hebrews chapter 1, and uh, we're going to be looking at the... Uh, and my Bible says, of course, this is not the inspired part of the Bible that's in here, but it says the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Hebrews. Now, your your Bible may or may not say that, uh, but uh, it's uncertain, but it's commonly attributed to to Paul, and um, I believe it was. You know, it's... uh, it's like that saying, if it's a duck, if it walks like a duck, if it sounds like a duck, it looks like a duck, it must be a duck. Well, it's kind of that way for me in, in uh, Hebrews about Paul. You know, if it looks like Paul, sounds like Paul, uh, it must have been Paul. But uh, we don't know that for sure, okay? I won't be dogmatic about that. I won't argue with you about that because uh, he doesn't tell us. I do know this, that God was the author and he used a human being to do that, and it could have been Paul, it could have been someone else that sounded like Paul. Whoever it was, God used him to use or to give us a great book uh, in the book of Hebrews. Some years ago, I did hear an evangelist speak on Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and that message really spoke to my heart. spoke to my heart as a man who had trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. It spoke to my heart as a husband, a father, a grandfather, as to my responsibility before my family. And it spoke to my heart even as a pastor. And uh, this evangelist said that the great theme of the book of Hebrews is that we're to look to Jesus above everything else. And so that is the title of our message, our first message tonight, 
this afternoon about uh, concerning Hebrews. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Now, let's look at those first three verses there. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and the upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And we'll stop there uh, and notice here that this theme of looking to Jesus is found uh, throughout this book. You find it here in these verses, verses 1 through 3. You find it in chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, But we see Jesus. You'll find it in chapter 4, verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, Chapter 7, verse 25, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. You find it in chapter 9, verse 28, unto them that look for him. Chapter 11, 20, verse 27, as seeing him who is invisible. Chapter 12, a very familiar uh, passage, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And then chapter 12, verse 14, follow peace without which no man shall see the Lord. And then chapter 12, verse 15, looking diligently. So you can see this theme of looking to Jesus is found throughout this book. Now there are some other themes uh, that we'll find throughout the book. There's the theme of better. Uh, You'll find that uh, Jesus is better uh, his sacrifice was better. And we'll find that. You see it actually in verse, verse 4, being made so much better. That's another theme that kind of runs through. And then there's the theme of rest uh, that comes through. And we'll find uh, come across that as well through a number of passages here. But, oh, how we need to look unto Jesus. While people and family and husbands and wives and churches and pastors and others may be important, No one is as important as the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to begin with uh, this, and I trust it will be a helpful book uh, uh, of study. Not long ago, uh, we've uh, uh, finished uh, uh, the book of Romans last Sunday, and uh, uh, yet I think this is a great book uh, uh, to also... uh, be talking about we talked about Galatians. Galatians was written by Paul, especially to the Jews, and they're uh, wanting to uh, come under the um, teaching of the Judaizers and so forth. But here's a great book uh, to the Hebrews. Now, over a hundred years ago, perhaps without question, the great preacher, greatest preacher since the New Testament, one of Charles Spurgeon, approached his pulpit and opened his Bible to the same text and said, I have nothing to do but preach Jesus Christ. And that's my desire, is to preach Jesus Christ. You see, as you study the pages of God's Word, the Lord Jesus is the topic you cannot evade. It's a type you cannot excuse. It's a truth you cannot escape. He is revealed, as an old country preacher used to say, from kiver to kiver. You know, he's there, from cover to cover you'll find the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, kiver to kiver, that may not be good grammar, but that's exactly what you find in the study of God's Word. You know, it's interesting to me, so many Christians know so little about their Savior. 
They shout, they stand, they serve, they speak about him without ever truly knowing who he is, what he is, and where he is. You see, God so orchestrated and inspired the scripture so Jesus might be shown. And God sent the spirit so that Jesus might be known. And so through the divine or the aid of the divine, we see Jesus was different. Jesus was distinct and Jesus was dissimilar than from anyone who ever lived. As a matter of fact, in all human history, there's never been anyone like Jesus Christ. There was an anonymous author. I'd like to meet that guy anonymous sometime. But uh, anonymous author gave us what I believe to be a glorious, wonderful description of our Savior. He said this, More than 1,900 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of life. This man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. Only once did he cross the boundary of the country in which he lived. That was during his exiled childhood. Your battery is low. That's not good. Did it say up there? No, it says it down here, but... <laughs> yeah, if you could do that, we'll, not that that's all that important, but anyway, let me get, get back to this description. In infancy, he started, startled the king, the childhood he puzzled the doctors, in manhood he ruled the course of nature, walked upon the billows as if on pavement, and hushed the sea to the sleep. He never wrote a book. And yet all the libraries of the country could not hold the books that have been written about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all schools put together cannot boast of having as many students. Though time has spread many years between people of this generation and the scene of the crucifixion, yet he still lives. Herod could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. He stands... Uh, forth from the highest pinnacle of, of heavenly glory, proclaiming by God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, and feared by devils as the living personal Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our God. Well, I think that was, that was great. That's a great description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank God his name is Jesus, and he is our Savior, our Lord, and our God. Now, in the text before us here today, we find a wonderful, beautiful description of our Savior. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture, and it will cause you to be amazed as you meditate upon it. Uh, for in it, we find the greatest description in all the 66 books, uh, or the 1,187 chapters contained in the Word of God. And we can catch a glimpse of, of time after he left earth. And I uh, want us to see that great and wonderful truth about it. Well, it just died. So, here. We'll see if it, uh, we might have to give it some chest pumps yet. Revive. I need a revival here. Nope. There's the chest pump number one. We'll see if we can get it to. But in the meantime, let's go to number one. Number one, a power that is unmatched. And we find this in verses one and two. Uh, you know, what would we do without PowerPoint? We'd have to just do without PowerPoint, right? 
a power that is unmatched. Here in verses 1 and 2, the writer conveys to us that he has a power unsurpassed, unparalleled, and unmatched. He gives us a glimpse, glimpse by looking at the past, the present, and future events. Notice, first of all, we see his power by communication. Look at verse 1 again. God, who at sundry times in a diver's manner spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. We notice here the writer informs us the power has been revealed to us by communication. Yet it's interesting to note that he speaks here of a twofold revelation from God. Notice, firstly, verbally, we see God revealed himself verbally through the prophets. Notice it says, God, who at sundry times in diverse manners spake, in time past under the fathers by the prophets. First Peter chapter 2, verse 20 and 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any t- private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Second Timothy 3 and verse 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So, this Bible is God's Word. He revealed Himself in it. And it's a powerful communication. It touches us or it teaches us what to believe. It reproves us. It corrects us. It instructs us. It tells us how to live right, that we might all be what God, all that God intends us to be. He has spoken to us. I wonder, are we listening? You won't hear what God wants to say to you if you're not reading it and studying it on a regular basis. You won't hear what God wants you to say or wants to say to you if you don't avail yourself to the services of your local church. God wants you to hear His Word. He wants you to hear it today. God wants you to hear it on Wednesday. God wants you to hear uh, His Word uh, last week. He wants you to hear His Word next week. And uh, uh, some of you uh, don't hear His Word from time to time because you're not here. Now, don't come to church just because of me. Come to church so that God can communicate to you through the preaching of the Word of God. So it is a verbal communication. Secondly, it's a visual communication. He communicates to us visually. In verse 2, we see that God revealed Himself visually through His Son. Notice the first part of verse 2. The writer says that He hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. And so we see God has plainly, pointly, pointedly, and powerfully revealed himself to us. You say, well, I've never seen the Lord Jesus with my own eyes. No, not as you see one another today. You look across and you can see each other, the person sitting next to you or in front of you. Or turn around, you're looking back of you. Don't, don't do that right now. But you can see each other, right? You can't see Jesus. But you know what? All that we know of God, He must reveal to us. Or else, without His divine revelation, we could simply be drifting in the darkness of the day without ever having any direction whatsoever. We have God's Word. We can see it with the eye of faith. 
We can read it. Jesus Christ is revealed to us in this book. Now, John chapter 1, of course, is a great passage (coughs) talking about Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was it not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of his, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is not just God's best word to man. He is God's last word to man. After Jesus, God has nothing left to say. And in that name, even the vocabulary of God is exhausted. Because after Jesus, there's nothing more to say, nothing else to say, nothing left to say. When you've said Jesus, you've said it all. So we see his power in communication. Secondly, we see his power with continuation. Verse 3 who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholdeth all things by the word of his power. The writer uses a very interesting phrase here when he says he's the one who is upholding all things by the word of his power. We not only see his power through communication, but through continuation. He's holding this world together. Paul spoke of it in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. The word consist is an interesting word. It comes from the root word where we get our word synthesis. The word synthesis means to combine things together. The word here in Colossians is speaking of holding things together. It literally means to glue. The word speaks of an adhesive that is used to hold things together. And so the writer is implying that the Lord Jesus is the glue of the galaxies. He's able to hold this world and this universe together, and I thank God for that. He's able to hold your life and my life together for that as well. He's an adhesive. He's the glue that's holding things together. We see his power in continuation. Think of a little boy who had a jigsaw puzzle, had a map of the world on one side and a picture of a man on the other side. His mother asked him to try to put the, 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 the puzzle together, and before long the little fellow had it figured out. He had the world in one complete piece, and his mother couldn't believe it. She had no idea that her little son knew so much about geography. So she asked her son, how on earth did you uh, do that? And the little boy replied, well, it's easy, mother. You see, I worked the side of the puzzle that the man was on first, and when you get the man right, you get the world right. Isn't that true? You get the man right, you get the world right. I thought that's exactly what our Savior does. 
He takes the broken pieces, the shattered dreams, the ruined lives of people and puts them back together again. And listen, I submit to you that Jesus Christ is the heavenly glue that can fix whatever problem you're facing today. Why? Because he's the one upholding all things by the word of his power. We also see his power in creation. Notice again the last part of verse 2. The writer tells us that it is by whom also he made the worlds. He demonstrates his power not only by communication, but by continuation and by creation. What many people fail to see is that Jesus Christ of the New Testament is the creator of the Old Testament. Again, Paul, speaking of the Lord Jesus in Colossians 1 and verse 16, said, For by him were all things created that in, are in heaven and are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him. John 1, 3, which we've already quoted, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Simply put, if anything is here, it was here, it was put here by God. The Lord Jesus, whose power caused things to come from nothing, in the beginning, into something. And by his very word, he spoke the existence, everything that it is. Yes, without doubt, we see his power in creation. Again, another little boy was talking to his mother, and she, he asked her, Mom, who made the moon? She said, well, God made the moon, son. Then he asked, well, who made the stars? Again, she replied, God made the stars also. He then asked, who made the trees? Son, God made the trees too. And the little boy was getting frustrated with the same answer over and over again. Finally, he asked, well, mama, all I want to know is, doesn't Jesus ever do anything? He was worried about Jesus. She was saying, God did this. God did this. God made this. Doesn't Jesus do anything? Well, yes, Jesus was there too. Jesus was there in the beginning. He was busy creating the world. Think with me for a moment about that last sentence, or the very first sentence, I should say, in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We all know that verse. We can quote that verse, can we not? Yet there's a key to unlocking the truth of that verse. If you look at that verse, you'll find that the word, the name God is the name Elohim. That's a plural noun. However, what is interesting that that plural noun is always followed by a singular verb. I used to teach English. Not that that makes a lot of difference, but... You know, I should know something about verbs and plurals and singulars. In other words, when we speak of ourselves in the plural, we say we are, don't we? But when God says, he says we is. You say, well, that's not very good grammar. But you know, it's a tremendous theology because in the beginning it was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, Spirit who created the universe. So, is because Jesus created this world that he had the power over this world when he was in this world. You see he had power over disaster, power over demons, power over disease, power over death, and power over depravity. 
And so because he created this world, he controlled this world, he can do anything for this world, by the world, through the world, and in this world that he chooses. And that's why we see his power by communication, by continuation, and by creation. A power that's unmatched. Secondly, we see a person that is unequaled. Look again at verse 3. In the first part of verse 3, it's a great verse of Scripture. The writer informs us that we look to Jesus not only to see a power that's unmatched, but a person that is unequaled. He uses a wonderful, powerful, and beautiful phrase to describe his person when he says, who is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person? We'll look at that a little closer here. First of all, in him is the radiance of deity. The radiance of deity. The brightness of his glory. The writer is implying that in him we find the radiance of deity. The the word brightness speaks of radiance or shining forth. The divine glory of God. It literally refers to the glowing of the glory of God. Just as the rays are intrinsically related to the sun, with neither one existing apart from the other, so the Father and the Son are essentially one. Now, many doctrine uh, to many, the doctrine of the Trinity really boggles the mind. How can three persons of the Godhead still be one God? And no doubt, uh, someone. You've heard uh, someone say about a child, the boy really favors his dad. You know, he kind of really looks like his dad. Or that girl, she really looks like her mother. You know, my uh, <clears throat> when we visit uh, our girls uh, sometimes and visit their church, they say, see my wife, oh, you're Jennifer's mom, or you're, you're Jessica's mom. You know, they can see her uh, in them. Well, that's exactly what the writer is saying here. He's telling us that the Lord is the radiance, the shining, the glowing forth, the glory of God. The radiance of his deity. We see it in him is the reflection of deity. The reflection of deity. Again, notice verse 3. The writer not only informs us of the brightness of his glory, but the express image of his person. In him not only do we see the radiance of deity, but the reflection of deity. I want you to pay particular attention to this phrase here, express image. Those two words actually come from one Greek word, and it's a word where we get our word character from. The word literally means a tool for engraving, or that which is engraved. The word speaks of a stamp on a coin or a mark that is made by the seal of a piece of wax. And so the writer is implying here that Jesus is the mere image of God. That he is the revelation, the reproduction, the reflection of God himself. By the way, I think it's what the songwriter had in mind in the chorus that uh, we sing from time to time. uh, Oh, to be like thee. Remember the words there at the end of that chorus? Stamp thine own image deep on my heart. I hope that's your sincere desire that you be like the Lord in your character. And when you sing that song, you mean what you're singing. Now, Jesus did not become God. He did become man, for he was always God. 
He did not become flesh and lose his deity. Rather, he became flesh while being deity. Again, I remind you of John's description in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, he was God and man together. And in him is the reflection of deity. Think for, with me for a moment. If he was God, then he would have to be perfect because God is perfect. Now here's a trick question. What were Jesus' strong points? You know, don't you always love these on the resume? What are your strong points? And then they ask you, what are your weak points? Well, what were Jesus' strong points? He didn't have any. Why? Because for someone to have strong points, they have to have weak points. And Jesus didn't have any weak points. Think about what it says in John 9 and verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Why is that such an important description or declaration of his deity? Well, unlike water or even air, light is incorruptible. It's a subject to, uh, it's not subject to contamination or corruption. Did you realize that? You say, well, sometimes the, the light can be. Uh, deflected. Well, that's because the glass is dirty. The light's not dirty. It's the glass that's dirty. The window. But the light itself is clean. Light exposes the dust particles. Just turn on the, a bright light in your room sometime. And you'll find all the dust flying around. Not a speck of dust gets on the light. No matter what avenue it sweeps through, it will always be perfectly pure. pure. That's why light is such a beautiful description of God, of the Lord Jesus. It's always pure. It's always uh, right. So we have a power that's unmatched, a person that's unequaled, and then thirdly, we have a position that is unshared. When we come to the second part In verse 3, the writer describes the Lord's position. Notice it is a preeminent position. When he had by himself purged our sins, the writer shows us that he he is a preeminent position. It's interesting to note that we're told he purged or cleansed our sins by himself. He needed not the help of anyone or anything. He did it preeminently, and he did it by himself. And therefore, because of that, God hath appointed him heir of all things. He sits in the position unlike that of any other, for God has appointed him as the landlord of heaven and earth. And without question, that is a preeminent position. And then we notice it's a permanent position. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, and we, might, we must ask as well as answer the question, why is Jesus seated there in heaven? Well, we have to look at the Old Testament history to see the, question, the answer to that question. As you know, the Old Testament high priest went into the tabernacle to make an atonement for his sins of the people, and he did so standing up. And of all the furniture that you find in the old uh, tabernacle, there was not a chair. Do you ever f- realize that? No chairs there. 
In the holy place, there was a candlestick. There was a table of showbread, the altar of incense. In the most holy place, the holy of holies, there was the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat. Yet there was no chair. And all of that illustrates and represents the fact that the Old Testament high priest's job was never finished. There was always a need for a sacrifice. There was always a need of atonement made for the people. And yet we have a high priest, unlike the Levitical high priest, our high priest sat down after his atonement for the sins of the world. Why? Because sitting down is a picture of completion. He's saying the work is done. The transaction is complete. It is finished. And so we find that salvation is no longer a do, it's a done. It's not something we do, it's something that we realize has been done. It's a complete. And because of this unshared position, we have a high priest who need not worry about making another atonement because but he has now spent his time ruling the powers of the world and being involved in our daily situations. Now in a few moments we're going to have the Lord's Supper. And I think this particular verse here in chapter 3 I think is something that helps us to realize what we're doing when we come to the Lord's table. The work of Christ and how effective it was. And that's what we're remembering. What did the work accomplish? Some suggest that Jesus really came came into this world to give us an example of service and piety. But you know what here it says? It says, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The incarnation is assumed in this statement as well as the mission of Jesus Christ. When he had himself purged, that demonstrates he came to this earth for that specific purpose. And we're going to remember that through the observance of the Lord's table. John, 1 John 3, 5 says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. He was doing something very specific. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He said in John chapter 17 verse 4 as he prayed. Jesus came to this earth according to the purpose of his father. And then also the phrase there. When he had by himself. Suggests a couple of things. Christ himself made the purification of sins. It's not Christ plus something. It's not plus something we do. It's not even the observance of this this table. It's Christ alone. It's not baptism. It's Christ alone. Now, observing the Lord's table, being baptized, those are commands and ordinances that God has given the local church. But that's not what saves us. They're again pictures of what Christ has done. He finished his work. He purged us. He he, he had by himself purged our sins. And he did it by himself. 
And so we see the effectiveness of his work in his accomplishment and then also in his completion. When he had by himself purged our sins, set down on the right hand of the majesty on high. It is completed. So as we come to this table this afternoon, we're going to, just in a few moments, I ask the men to come. We're not going to make any further comments about it. We're just going to do what God has told us to do, is to observe and remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. So if we could have our men come at this time.